Welcome back everyone to the Anagram Journey Podcast. Today's music is provided by today's guest, which is Anagram 9, the incredibly talented Audrey Asad. Before this conversation, I had never heard of religious existential OCD, nor the uh, Plymouth Brethren, but that's probably not too big of a surprise to anyone that knows me. I love how Suzanne and Audrey talked about uh, her work of intentional doing and a lot of great talk about balancing physical, mental, and emotional health in their work. If you're going to be in the Austin area or can make it down February 28th for the Parenting in the Anagram discussion, and then the following two days for the Know Your Number Anagram conference with Suzanne, please come on. Visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com for registration and information. And please stick around at the end of the show to hear more of Audrey's beautiful music from her album, Evergreen. Audrey, welcome to the Enneagram Journey. It's so good to have you here. I um, am particularly taken with one or two things from the information you filled out for us. But before I go there, tell everybody a little bit about your Enneagram Journey. I think when I um, tested as a two, I was reading the test as if I should answer it um, with what I should be like, what women should uh-huh. be like and how women should talk. And it, it was almost like I was answering from a place of shame and guilt, really. Um, and so I feel like that is why I eventually realized as I grew more and went through therapy and counseling, um, I realized that I was answering not as myself, but as a perception of myself, I felt pressured to uphold in my culture and in my community. Um, so that would be where I realized, I think it wasn't me. And then as I engaged with it, with friends and, and discussing through the situations I was going through and how I was struggling with my own reactions and my own processing. And I was very frustrated by some things in myself at that time, some ways that I thought through problems and some ways that I could, would struggle to, in, you know, find the courage to encounter the big emotions I was having and, feeling very disconnected from my body. And actually in that period of stress, I also started experiencing actual physical dissociation. Wow. So as that all kind of, um, panned out, I started to see like, Oh, my dysfunctional tendencies, my tendencies and stress are just like 100% classic nine. And so that, um, I mistook, as you said, the sort of people pleasing slash peacekeeping aspects of two and nine, for each other, but it wasn't until I started having some really big problems that I understood my number. Yeah. I think, um, a, a big reality that doesn't get talked about very much is orientation to time. Mm. And, um, in the information that you sent us, you said, I kept looking back over the dysfunction in my life and nine's orientation to time is the past. Mm Mm-hmm. And a two's orientation to time is the present moment. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think that makes a a big, big difference. And the other thing that I'm very intrigued by that you talked about is recognizing it through dysfunction. You know, there are people who want the Enneagram to be uh, happy and all the positive things about you (laughs) and all the things about us that are so great, but we don't know ourselves Mm -hmm. by the things that are so great or by the things we get right. We know ourselves by Mm -hmm. how we behave in stress or or by patterns of behavior that haven't been particularly Mm great for us. So one thing I want to add for the listeners is you're 35, right? Yes. Yeah. And so in my generation, so I'm 67 Mm -hmm. and in my generation, if I did a women's retreat, 
for 150 women, mm-hmm. um, probably 60 would identify as twos on the Enneagram. Wow. And probably 20 are mm-hmm. twos. That makes sense. And that's because it was the right thing for a woman in the South right, or for a Christian, right? Like it was the right way for us to behave right. in the world. Right, right, right. Absolutely, yeah. I think that happens a lot. So as you embraced all of that, here's what you shared with me. I'm going to, I'm going to read this because I'm so intrigued by it. Okay. Um, I, and I usually don't get answers that I have no idea what those words mean. Okay. But I did get that from you. So <laughs> oh, you said, wow. okay. I'm from New Jersey. I'm 35 and I have two children raised Plymouth brethren. I was still with you. Okay. Living with religious existential OCD and I make music for a living. Okay. So I want to talk about two things out of that sentence. I want to start with religious existential OCD, Mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about making music. Yeah, absolutely. So um, religious OCD and existential OCD are two types of OCD and the sort of interior types, but they um, can often live together because they're very similar in terms of uh, their source and their effect. And so I... I first suspected that I had something like that when I was speaking with a friend years ago who um, struggled with it. It's also called scrupulosity. And um, I thought that it was a normal pattern in my brain that everyone was experiencing. It just, I had no reference point for it being a disorder in some way because it's all I had ever experienced in terms of how to think about God and salvation and my soul and such. And so I'll explain what that is in a minute. But when I first realized that I was struggling with it, it was because a friend offhandedly mentioned, Oh, I was diagnosed with this type of OCD and here are the the markers. And I was just, my jaw was on the floor because I, I was recognizing myself in her words. Like she's reading off the symptoms to me. And I'm thinking of all these moments, like, uh, being six years old and, lying on my bed at night, um, every night for three hours before falling asleep sometimes, um, repeating the salvation prayer over and over and over hundreds of times and feeling every time like I hadn't done it correctly, or maybe I didn't mean it hard enough, you know? And so I was Mm -hmm. obsessing over rituals, but not outwardly like hand-washing, like something that you might think of with OCD. I had an interior set of rituals that I was going through obsessively trying to stay, um, confident of my salvation, you know, that was really the whole thing. And so I had those symptoms and more recently in the last like five years, four years, maybe I've struggled with obsessing over existential questions like, um, well, the most, the biggest being is God real. Well, it's totally normal to be tormented over that question. If you really truly have it, I would say that my pattern of engaging with that question is robbing, it would rob me of sleep and it would rob me of focus on during the day on normal chores, you know, because I would be ruminating and mulling. Um, And so there's other symptoms as well, but those two forms of OCD are something that I believe myself to struggle with um, and have spoken with counselors about. It's kind of hard to, you can only diagnose it by symptoms. So I was able to be diagnosed with that. And, um, it is a thing that I manage with body uh, engagement. 
So it intersects with my temperament really nicely in terms of, or at least neatly, if not nicely. But it because I do have such a rich interior world and I have struggles with, you know, embodiment, it's really easy for me to get stuck in my head in a hamster sure. wheel of thought. Sure, sure. That's so interesting. Thank you for that. And I want to, I don't want to get in on anything that is uh, therapeutic. You know, I'm, I'm kind of good about what I know and what I don't know. Yeah. And I know the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Um, So feel free to disagree with me. Okay. But I I would say as a nine with a one wing, which you Mm -hmm. have claimed that, you know, that whole thing of merging, merging, merging with other people and what they think and not feeling like it's okay to assert yourself Mm -hmm. seems to make uh, children who are nines magnets for what they're being taught. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't want any conflict, and I don't think it's okay for me to assert myself. So I'm gonna I'm gonna merge with that from these people who seem to know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with a big one wing, you would have to then perfectly right. behave based on what you've merged with. Mm-hmm. So my question is, how do you know the difference between being a nine with a one wing mm-hmm. and that disorder, mm-hmm. like? Yeah, do you, I think you know exactly what I'm asking. I do, I do. Yeah. I think that um, where I started to differentiate them is with intensity and a length of time that would be devoted to puzzling over something. So three hours before bed, praying the sinner's prayer over and over could certainly be uh, easier for me to be compelled by as a nine with a one wing. But I don't think it would keep keep you from sleeping if you don't have some kind of obsessive compulsive tendency towards the Got thought, it. the way of thinking for that long of a time. And, for the, and, and uh, I would say the emotional impact of those questions being extremely um, sharp and intense uh, because you couldn't stop thinking about it, you know, so... If I think to myself one day, do I even love my children, <clears throat> which is actually kind of a, co- a question about consciousness and religion, if, if it might sound like an anxiety question, and it is, but beneath that, it is also a question about the meaning of life, the what is a human soul, are people just animals? I mean, it's got all these questions wrapped up into it. And so there would be times in my life where I would ask myself something like that in the morning and be able to not do the, I wouldn't be able to do the dishes very well. Or if someone talked to me, I couldn't hear them because I was just knotted up over a question. Um, It was interrupting my life. So that would be a season where I'm not managing that OCD well. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. All right. So I want to move right into making music. Okay. Because I'm guessing that uh, making music is the antidote for that in some ways Mm -hmm. and a way for you to express yourself that isn't too risky Mm -hmm. in the sense that um, you can make music from a very deep place Mm -hmm. and you do. And from that deep place, then you can say things in a way that other people can hear them safely. Mm Mm-hmm because of all that you're carrying. Is that accurate? Well, firstly, to the first part of what you said, I think that making music is an absolute medication for me in a great way. Um, And I never picked up on the relationship that I had to it um, 
as well as I did once I realized that I had OCD because I started to see like, oh, I feel so free making music. And half of that, I think, is because of the physical aspect of it, because it is taking you even if you're writing lyrics, you're singing, you're moving your hands, your head. It's taking you somewhat out of your head just by just by doing it. Um, cooking is very similar for me. It's my second love. I would do it all day if I had the time. And I really feel like it's because of the, the sensual element of it. Um, both being a type nine and a person with OCD music, um, it's event emotionally, but it's a physical act. And so it, that intersects really well for me with my struggles in that area. Um, and I think always has. If I was going to uh, just put an Enneagram overlay or merge with that and use the Enneagram, I would say that it sounds to me like you're talking about finding a way to balance thinking and feeling and doing, Yeah, which is the goal for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So for people who don't know, uh, your Enneagram number is determined by motivation, mm-hmm. but once you find your number, you fit into one of three triads. And those triads are determined by whether or not you receive information first with what do I think okay. or with what do mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. or with what am I going to do. Mm-hmm. And um, when we're balanced in those three, beautiful things happen. Mm-hmm. And when we're not, we are aware, even if the world isn't, that something was missing from all of that. So for mm-hmm. me as a two... When I'm helping people, there's there's level one of that. And then there's the healthier place where I'm helping people when I know it's mine to do, mm-hmm. not just helping everybody who comes along. Mm-hmm. And then it's evaluating the, the fact that if I've done what was mine to do, then it is what it is and I need to move on instead of kind of waiting around to see if you appreciate me for helping you and mm-hmm. for loving you well, right? Mm-hmm. And only when I use thinking, feeling, and doing can I be healthy in my number. It's true for every number. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So nines are doing dominant and doing repressed. Mm -hmm. Right? So you take in information with what needs to be done, but sometimes you just think, you know, somebody else ought to do that. Somebody should do that. Mm -hmm. Somebody should pick that up. So how do you discipline yourself as a nine to write music? <clears throat> well, I think it's or some, to wash. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or to wash the dishes. Totally. Or to, you know, yeah, go buy school supplies for the kids or, or, or. Yeah. So music is a little bit of a, um, an easier one for me to make time for because I find it fun. So it's sort of a, you know, an enjoyable pursuit. It's not just something that must be done, but something that I actually like to do. It's something I want to do, but, but Regardless, I do struggle sometimes with the doing and the embodiment of my ideas and my thoughts. And um, one thing I have just over the years really trained myself to do is show up and just try. And um, that's the same for any writer and any person who's working with long form anything or words. Um, Showing up is half of the process or more for me. And it is something that I just have to, uh, I don't know, how do I discipline myself? I just force myself to go. Um, and yesterday was one of those days where I showed up and, and got, no, I mean, nowhere after two hours and started crying, you know, because I'm like, I don't, 
I had the same experience yesterday. So I'm working on a new book and I was at my desk and I've had to put a a note on my door where I would leave my office that says, get your butt back in the chair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I literally stopped yesterday and argued with my handwriting on the door (laughs) of my office about whether or not I was going to get back in the chair and just show up. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. But as I've, um, I think, I think this is actually one of the nine strengths showing up in my process. But as I have expanded my self care, I hate to use that phrase. It's very cliche, but my a therapeutic and meditation and, you know, health journey to include body work and structural massage and acupuncture and rowing. I'm training, training for a marathon on the rower. And as I've added physicality in areas all across the board, it has become easier for me to show up, to do the dishes, to pick up the sock. Cause that is my oldest struggle is seeing a sock or something on the floor and going like, Oh, you yeah. know, like, a, I, I could have bend over and do this. It's right there, but I'm not going to, you know, and, um, it has changed and gotten so much better since my physical activity, not just in exercise, but in every way has just kind of been building and I've been pushing into that really hard. And I see improvement in all those areas because of that. Man, I couldn't have written that out and set the table for myself to teach something any better. So I'm going (laughs) to talk for a minute. Okay. (laughs) There is some confusion with people who are at a beyond beginner level of Enneagram work, trying to understand stances, which have to do with which of the centers of intelligence is repressed mm-hmm. for you, thinking, feeling, or doing. Mm-hmm. And the confusion comes for three, sixes, and nines because they're all dominant and repressed in mm-hmm. the same center. So for you as a nine, you're doing dominant and mm-hmm. you're doing repressed. Mm-hmm. And that means that you are taking in information with what needs to be done. And everything you just said is an advertisement for nines mm-hmm. to connect to their bodies and do You don't learn doing any way other than doing. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you're doing repressed, which fours, fives, and nines are, you lack the things that doing teaches you, like endurance Mm -hmm. and Mm self-confidence and self-assurance. All of those things come from doing. So it's a, a lovely way for you to teach the listeners of my podcast about how helpful doing is. Talk a little bit about uh, connecting to your body because, you know, I, I do think that you're right in that self-care has become cliche, but only the language has yeah. become oh, cliche yeah. because nobody knows how to do self-care mm-hmm. that I know. I Like everybody's struggling with what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And, and also I'm curious because you had talked about in the like show prep about something you were interested in talking about was about the body and how the fluctuates and the feelings. And I thought that the questions and that what you brought up are a very gut centered Mm -hmm. question, a very body centered question and not head centered like I am or feeling centered. Like a lot of people are. Yeah. I, um, so I first started to sort of interrogate, uh, some of my monologues about myself internally when I realized my number and then when I started to do acupuncture because 
there's a there's a spot on your forehead. People are super familiar with it. It is a chakra called the third eye. A lot of people don't believe in that. All I know is that I went to acupuncture a couple of years ago and I got a needle in the third eye in the chakra. And I had, I mean, a, I'm sitting in the chair. It's my first time there and I just start bawling, you know. And firstly, I felt like I had electricity shooting out of the center of my forehead, which was cool and weird. But then <laughs> fo- following that, I had this deep riverbed, deep sense of grief over feeling disconnected from myself. And um, that was where I realized I have to find a way back into myself. And again, I was having um, disassociation or dissociation, excuse me, uh, experiences where I would look down at my body and say, I'm not in my legs. I'm floating up by the ceiling and I'm having, and this was a PTSD thing, which is a whole other story that we can totally get into, but I didn't know that. And I, I started sensing after that acupuncture session, like you've got to find a way to inhabit yourself. Mm-hmm. You've got to find a way to re-enter yourself. And I think you've just got to start, you know, I hated exercising, like had such a self berating relationship to it. So I started to interrogate and examine those monologues. Like, so you're not an athlete. You would never be good at this, no matter how much you do it. Why are you even here? You know, that um, kind of talk internally. And so one wing helped you with that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as I began to say, what would happen if I just talked differently about myself and my first labor experience, I have never felt so in touch with what a nine can be as I have in labor. Um, I had a, I had a 23 hour labor with no medication and it was stalling and stalling at one point. And I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, they told you that every, I'm speaking out loud to myself. (laughs) They told you, you do everything during labor. You got to do. It's just whatever. No kidding. I've done that four times. Yeah. And so I said to myself, Uh, They told you that every woman at some point during her labor says, I can't do this, but you're not going to say it. That's a very one thing. You're not going (laughs) to say it. Every time you feel like saying, I can't do it, you're going to yell, I can do this. (laughs) And so I did. And it absolutely turned from that moment, labor sped up and just, and happened because I had changed my inner monologue and I have realized that all of that kind of, um, thinking and repressing of the body intersecting with my own personal trauma and my temperament and all that had created a reality in which I didn't feel comfortable dancing. I didn't feel comfortable exercising. I didn't feel comfortable in any way, in any physical way. Um, and so I had to actually think my way there. (laughs) Um, but that's how I've reconnected with myself. And now I feel like the connection, the tether between me and my body or my soul and my body is, is much shorter it's not so oh, that's spread lovely. out, you know. That's lovely. Yeah, yeah. So um, thank you for all of that. And l- let me say uh, in part to that that I'm fascinated by how much work you've done on yourself verbally. <laughs> like yeah. talking to yourself, interviewing yourself, mm-hmm. coming to terms with what you're doing yourself. So the reason we picked you up and wanted you to be on the podcast is because what you put on Twitter is smart and positive 
And is that intentional or is that who you've become? Smart and positive as in, um, that's funny. You know, most people don't describe my Twitter as positive, but I don't know if that's because I'm a uh, very blunt on Twitter. Yeah. But you're- I, I believe it's positive as well. Yeah. Um, it is intentional. I, I have taken a certain stance on Twitter where, um, because all the f- platforms are very different and I analyze them very differently. And I think most of us can, if we sit around and look at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they're very different demographics in some yes, ways and different environments. So on Twitter, I've adopted sort of a stance of um, my most social, social justice oriented commentary happens on Twitter because I feel like it actually develops into real conversation versus Facebook, which does not. And um, I have also adopted a stance of trying to be kind of my whole, the, the widest spectrum of myself. So, oh, vocally doubting, um, funny, because I can be really stupidly, nerdily funny, but funny, um, confident, you know, in my opinions. And that I find Twitter is receptive to that. And so it's intentional in the sense that I, I need a place to be a, a as much of myself as I can be. Um, Facebook is not that place. Uh, so what, what I like about your presence on Twitter is that you are funny and you're all those things that you just said without ever being cynical. And Twitter is just a man, a safe heaven for cynicism. And you don't, yeah. I never really see you take that route. I was just talking to someone about cynicism the other day and saying that, um, it's one of the most easily disguised uh, temptations in religiosity for me because um, the way that I've always engaged with religion up until very recently has been very uh, both nine and one driven. And one of those things is the sort of the perfection and purity and, you know, righteousness part Um, when I was much younger, especially it was all I focused on. And I think that developed a sort of cynicism in the sense that I kept expecting other people and expecting myself to live up to these standards. And then it wouldn't happen over and over and over and over. And I'm going, Oh, people, you know, they're hopeless. I'm hopeless. We're all hopeless, you know, because my, my perfectionism was so forward in the way that I engaged with God and kingdom and spirituality. Um, now I've become much more of a mystic, I guess, mm-hmm. in practice and in in my reading. Um, I've adopted spiritual practices that came from outside where I was raised and what I felt comfortable with as a younger person. And as I've done that and expanded and kind of moved in more into that like healthy nine territory of holding a lot of things, you know, um, having capacity to hold a lot of things and a lot of ways of thinking and being and doing, um, I have seen that my general tone is, I think, a nice balance between one and nine. Peacemaking focused and justice focused. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that results in something positive in the world, then I'm thankful for that. Well, and what I like that you just spoke to is I personally would think there'd be a bigger gap between nine and one because mm-hmm. of how dualistic ones can be. Right. And how both and nines can be. Mm-hmm. And you you talk a lot about that movement of going more to nine yeah. and holding that. Right. And I I, I think they're both, imp- not dualism, but uh, the, the righteousness of 
one, the high standards of justice of a one are important in the world. As we all know, it's like none of the numbers are worse than the others. And it's so important. But when I was, um, a less whole healed person than I am today, um, my OCD intersecting with my Plymouth Brethren upbringing, which was extremely fundamentalist. And then my, my whole temperament struggle, the battle that I fought there, that created a very judgmental, obsessive kind of high standards person. So I hope that my social justice standards for the world, which are high, are now tempered with the kind of tolerance and capacity of a nine for compassion and empathy and patience for people who are in a different place. Um, yeah. I find them to be high without judgment. That's awesome. That and makes that's me feel a, very honored. If we could have more of that, if we could have more high without judgment, then we could all um, move forward a little more in tandem, I think, mm-hmm. without being defensive about how we see and all that. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to share some of those practices that you do? Yeah. So I do some pretty postmodern things like I use the my, um, the Headspace app for mindfulness. I find it incredibly helpful and it's, you can pick your amount of time. So you, you open this app up and you pick like two minutes, five minutes or 10 yep. minutes and you can start or begin or, you know, middle or end your day. And there's all these different themes and times of day. And, um, I will often, uh, put off the chores actually, or the work for five or 10 minutes of something like that and find that I'm much more uh, quick to do things that need to be done. So it ends up being that that 10 minutes, uh, although less time is spent on the other things, I am much more able to just go about my day and do the things I need to do if I've taken some time to do something in that vein. So there's that. And um, I do a sit every morning. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I do a 20 minute sit. And unfortunately, it only lasts me till about 4.30. <laughs> and then I need to do another one, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but I get that. I don't beat myself any up. I don't beat myself up anymore if I miss a sit or if I don't do it. But I tell you, I can sure see it in my day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is definitely, so, yeah. I would say the other practices are acupuncture is a very spiritual practice for me. Right. I haven't been in a little while, but I um, I go in spurts for a really long time usually. And then getting regular body work from someone who works with fascia, the sort of network of um, ligaments and structural elements. Um, I've started to try to, again, in spurts, kind of go regularly to somebody in that department. Uh, that's a very spiritual practice for me because I always make time for it to be a very contemplative time and in tandem with my body changing shape. Um, it's a very rich thing for me usually. And then I would say yoga is a, another kind of sporadic, but common, uh, consistent part of my life that is a spiritual practice as well. And I get, actually, I get a ton of flack on social media about it from, um, Catholics who I'm Catholic, but a lot of, Catholics are at least in this area of the world under the impression that that is a very, very dangerous practice. Um, well, I'm married to a former Catholic priest and he's trying to learn. So I think, you're okay. right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't know that about you. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You, if we did this in reverse, 
I, I got some stuff to share with you. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. uh, be the same place someday. I'm sure we will. For that. I'm, I'm actually very, very thankful that you said yes to this podcast. I'm not ending it. I'm just telling you. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you you're speaking to a lot of things that uh, aren't often spoken to with clarity or confidence. And I think there are a lot of people who are going to benefit. So right here at wherever we are in recording time, I'm thankful. <laughs> Thank you. Very wow, thankful. that's so honoring. Um, appreciate that. Um, so here's my next question for you. And I have so many. <laughs> um, do you see a difference in the kind of music you write when you're engaging in these practices and when you're not? I think I see a difference in every area of my life when I'm not balancing Mm -hmm. that uh, spirituality and physical practice of spirituality. I see a difference in every area and music is definitely no exception because that battle to show up becomes very difficult and not just show up physically, but show up mentally and emotionally Um, I can get very checked out and very numb and vegetative. And I do that when I'm not engaging, especially physically, but in all the areas, um, nurturing and nourishing and watering those aspects of myself, the the sort of different stances, as you call them, um, that impacts my music for sure. I mean, I have to get in my body throughout the day to be able to really get in touch with what I'm feeling Mm -hmm. and, um, writing songs, even if they're devotional, I like to engage my feelings in that process. And I have to really get intentional and and often physical as I try to stay connected in that way. So yeah, it's very important. Okay. I have a couple of questions for you for our listeners. And one is if somebody who's listening, thinks that they may uh, be struggling with religious or existential OCD. Do you have a website you could send them to or something that would be helpful? Yeah, so honestly, uh, because scrupulosity in particular, religious OCD is so um, kind of like research and logic and reason-driven in every way, very linear way of thinking about things and... um, Reading about the symptoms is honestly just Wikipedia. I Wikipedia scrupulosity or religious OCD or existential OCD and read everything you can find about it. It'll link to different articles. Um, as you read through the experiences of people on their blogs, again, like just through Google, because that's what I did. Um, I just started to say like, hear bells ringing, you know, just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's your first indicator because really – it's an interior form of OCD, so it's hard to diagnose, but you will know in your gut, I think, if it's you. And um, then I would say beyond reading about it and self-diagnosing, I th- it was very helpful for me to visit a trauma therapist because um, she was so focused on helping me connect to my body and helping me connect um, to my emotions, which... If, even if you're not a nine, but you have OCD that's of an mm-hmm. interior type, you will spend a lot of time in your head. And a therapist who, either somatic therapist or a trauma therapist, someone who works with body connection and language mm-hmm. and feeling your emotions in your frame. And um, that really helped because now um, 
I have found that, as I said before, the tether between like mind and body is much shorter for me than it used to be. So not only does that help with my nineness, uh, dysfunctionally speaking, it also helps with my mental OCD because sure. I am able to just get in there physically and stop the, the hamster wheel much more quickly. Um, so they've worked in tandem for me in that way, my number and my disorder. But I would say, yeah, um, any therapist who works with body connectivity and um, awareness would be really helpful for someone struggling with that, I think. Great. Thank you for that. Um, We only have a few minutes left, so this is a big question for me. Um, Why did you decide to get well? Oh, yeah. Well, I decided to get well because I got too sick to ignore. I remember a point where about two and a half years ago, I started to experience panic attacks in multiple types of situations. I started to experience physical symptoms, um, like ticking and twitching in my hands and, uh, like uncontrollable, you know, like couldn't play the piano, which is what I do for a living. So it was interrupting my job and I had to, I ended up having to cancel a whole tour season because I was panicking every time I walked into a church building and just symptom after symptom and manifesting itself in my life and interrupting my life. And I finally thought like, this cannot go on. I'm just like exhausted. And so I ended up contacting this therapist who is an EMDR focused PTSD therapist. And I went to see her because my talk therapist said like, you're manifesting symptoms of either super deep anxiety or trauma or both. And I think you should see someone who's body focused, who specializes in getting to the root of this stuff. So that was when I I was referred to her because I was experiencing all that. And that I never looked back after that because I did a three day intensive with her and made so much progress um, in that short time. Not all the way there, but, and I'm not all the way there now, but it was, it was enough that made me realize like, oh, my body is crying out to tell me things like it's been storing this pain and all this trauma and grief and whatnot until I could bear to look at it. But now it's like giving up. It's so tired because I haven't turned my attention to these problems. Um, so I just decided after I met with her that, uh, it was a journey I wanted to take and I have children and you know, I want to be a whole person, um, not just for myself, but for the people who I, who I care about. So, uh, this is language that I don't use very often. Um, and I think you'll hear it in the context with which I mean it. I, um, am so grateful that at 35, there's so much witness value to you choosing to take care of yourself and choosing all the work that you had to do to model being healthy for other young folks. It's like it, it generally takes people way past 35 to decide, man, I'm going to do better than this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out what's wrong. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to write beautiful music. I'm going to keep singing and showing up. And um, it's just an honor to visit with you, Audrey. It's Thank an you, honor. Thank you, Suzanne. I really appreciate that. It's been Wonderful to speak with you, and I hope that we get to speak about life in Enneagram in person someday. I'm sure we will. Boy, I hope we do, too. I've got a story of my own. I think we might have a lot to share. Mm -hmm. Blessings, 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 and then some more of those. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 